I'm sure listeners maybe, but what so does the goat do down dog? Like, no, it's, just, it shouldn't be called, listen, this is how every, this is, this is how it should be framed. So it's more accurate and no one gets upset about it. What it should be called is yoga outdoors with goats present. That's what. My name is Kim Weeks, and this is Practicing Well, a podcast designed to bring you content to help you be your best self. Jason Crandall talked about how yoga is not a thing to be changed, but rather something to be accessed. And so your interaction with it and your study with it is a reflection of who you are and what you're looking for in this process of self-inquiry. And that's what led us to talk about plumbing the depths, which is, to be honest, is the phrase I used in my very first blog post in my old yoga studio in 2002 to describe what I thought yoga was. And so it was really cool to listen to Jason talk about what is happening in these teacher training programs. In these 200-hour, 300-hour programs, Jason is considered a teacher of teachers. And so he's meeting a lot of people who are already far down the rabbit hole in the yoga sphere. And so it's really interesting to think about how there's no yoga college for yoga enthusiasts. There's just this thing, this structure we have to spend hundreds of hours with someone or a group of people who we think are really going to tell us what they think about how it is that we could, I could, you could access these vast teachings of yoga. So we talk about a bunch of other things, the business of yoga, where we've come, where we might be going. And I'd love to hear everything you think about it. Let you know, drop me an audio message or send me an email. Let me know what you think about my conversation with Jason Grandel. Well, hi, Jason. <laughs> I'm glad you're to see you again after many, many years and to talk to you about um, yoga lineage, what it is and why it matters, your perspective on it. And, you know, what, what you've been up to for these last 20 years since our orbits were precisely concentric Yep. and to talk to you about, you know, the kind of future of American yoga, the thing that you coming on that I'm so excited about is that if I understand the Jason Crandall method correctly, you are one of the first I've had on that sort of explicitly post lineage flow that you you've got this kind of flow teaching flow vibe that comes from a lot of alignment based training and other trainings that I'd like to hear about, but let's start there yoga lineage, what it is, why it matters and where you place yourself in the midst of that. Oh my God. Okay. So I think like so many people of a certain generation, I am a mishmash of a lot of stuff. I've been influenced by a lot of different things. Um, I had very strong early influences from my four primary teachers that were the the backbone of my very long teacher training um, in the year 2000. So Rodney Yee, Richard Rosen, Mary Pafard, and Patricia Sullivan all of which I love dearly, um, and none of which do I really see anymore. 
all of them had certain threads in common, but since you spoke about lineage, they all have a single lineage in common, which is they all came out of the Iyengar world, but they had all also moved on from the Iyengar world. So in a way, they were kind of like a, a, the first generation, to my knowledge, of people that were in that Iyengar orbit very deeply and intensely for a period, for but for whatever combination of reasons, they weren't all in forever. They they kind of they 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 moved on from that uh, from representing that specific lineage. Um, and so from my foundational teaching, from my foundational teachers, I was largely inspired by Iyengar yoga. Um, enough so that I studied for many years also with Ramananda Patel, oh uh, who was the a best oh my significant God. element yeah. within yeah. that orbit. Um, and we should place this for everybody. Now. This is the Bay Area. We're talking San yeah. Francisco, Bay Area. The Bay Area mm-hmm. in a good time, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the 90s and the 2000s were a good time for yoga in that era. Um, and so I was both um, informed by and influenced specifically by that lineage, but never completely part of it. Um, I would say that the other... The other pretty significant influence on me as a practitioner and as a student, uh, or as a student and as a teacher, is Ashtanga Yoga. Um, that is that was actually the first style of yoga that hooked me. Um, I had taken several other classes from many other teachers for a period of time, but when I came across Ashtanga Yoga, I think I was maybe twenty-one. And I had grown up as a pretty competitive hockey player in Detroit. And there was several different things about that practice that I was able to hook into and identify with. Number one, it was pretty physically demanding. Um, And number two, it was repeatable. And so having had that background as an athlete, like I just understood drills. I understood repetition. I understood like coming to the same thing time and time again. Um, And so I left that practice, the Ashtanga world, for many reasons. Um, But one of the just really personal reasons is it didn't seem to work that well in my body. Um, And so I love the the raw physicality of it, and I love the uh, consistency of it, and I love the repetition of it but the actual postures involved in it weren't so commensurate with what my uh, adult lower back needed. Um, so mm-hmm. it was that plus the like Iyengar plus the post Iyengar world. And mm-hmm. those to this day, um, like you can't really take a class with me and completely extract those elements. Like I don't represent any of those elements. I don't claim those elements. Um, but I acknowledge those elements and a class with me certainly reflects them. Mm-hmm. So we can't extract any of those because you have your own method. So let's mm-hmm. talk about what that is, or can we as a kind of a wending path back toward, you know, what, what, you know, you and I are contemporaries of each other. And I sure. should say, and kind of name that I'm, 
and bringing in at the moment, of course, there's different generations and the idea that yoga generations, thanks to the RYT 200 and 500 hour programs are really in very short timeframes, like two years, three years, four years. But if we were going to talk about a quote, normal generation, you and these people you cited and are kind of a generation ahead of us. And here you and I are in this generation, such as it is, which is why I reached out to you and Andrea in the first place. And then we've got people behind us, many of whom you're teaching who are in this other generation. And so since you've got the Jason Crandall method, let's talk about that as a method, because if you're calling it a method in, in a way, that's a lineage, right? Yeah, I feel kind of um, a little hesitant. So th- let me kind of let me talk you through the iteration of this. Um, I remember, so there was a period of my life where, in addition to teaching yoga, I was in addition to teaching yoga more or less full time. I was also running a mind body center in San Francisco that was connected to the San Francisco Bay Club, San Francisco Bay Club Mind Body Center. And so I had exposure to the experience, both the upside and the downside of essentially being a mid-level management, a mid-level manager in a very um, structured corporate world. And I remember this week of meetings where what we were trying to do was um, develop the greatest synonyms and the greatest adjective, not synonyms, adjectives and adverbs that described what we did as a community, right? And so it was kind of this branding exercise, right? But the branding exercise was really just to, to figure out the right descriptors. And so I did this for the broader mind-body center. But then I also started to do this by myself because you know, for all of us, if someone comes up to me or you and says, well, what kind of yoga do you teach? The answer is like, I don't know, like a lot of different things. Let me take you way back when, right? But so what I started to realize was I wanted to have some sort of way of just simply describing the components of a class with me. And so that's how I came up with power, precision, and mindfulness, right? That that was kind of the, that was kind of the, the beginning of this whole thing. And I kind of decided like, well, power, because I'm not an Ashtanga teacher, but I take components of that method and I like a robust class. Precision, because I love technique, both the intellectual and also the postural aspects of um, technique. So power, precision, and also precision was kind of like a little bit paying homage to, in my experience, the most important attributes that I learned from the Iyengar world. And then mindfulness was this kind of broader understanding of that when we do this practice, a significant component of it is um, like uh, a just a basic mindful awareness of what our body is doing in space, how our breath is being facilitated, and also what's happening in the mind state, what's happening in that movie that's playing inside our head. So that was really the very beginning. So I'm like power, precision, mindfulness. These are the three things that I hook into. That was kind of the the beginning. Then as I continued on and I started to create 
mini courses that I was teaching in various locations. The, the first things that I started to teach a lot, both as a faculty in other longer trainings, but also alone by myself was sequencing. And what I realized was that I had a methodical approach to sequencing, right? So that's that's the word, method. I had a methodical approach to sequencing. I also started to realize that if you take, let's say you take 40 classes with me, live or in person or whatever, there is there are going to be some things that are consistent. There are going to be 40 different classes but they're not going to be 40 completely random disparate experiences. Like there are some very consistent aspects of a class with me. Um, Some of those aspects are power, precision, mindfulness. So I had a sequencing method and then I could reverse engineer, teach that sequencing approach to other people. And I just knew that like so many people, I am a combination of many hard to pin down influences. But then I started to realize like, okay, I kind of need to own this. Like there are attributes to my classes that are extremely consistent. And I have an ongoing, consistent, methodical approach to sequencing. And then over the years, I've also developed a pretty methodical approach to teaching trainers. So that's kind of where it's like the Jason Crandall yoga method, right? But a couple of other things I want to say about this, which is it is also extremely loose because I don't want to carve out any like pro forma pre-packaged stamps. You do, you do five A's, five B's, this pose, this pose, this pose, and we call it the blah, blah, blah method. And you're saying and so, namaskar A and B, right? Sun right. salute A and B. Mm-hmm. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but like I am fiercely independent. I always have been. And not only am I fiercely independent, but I'm pretty contrarian. And I'm also very, not only open to, but compelled to changing things. So being my own, if it was like a really strong brand, I would be a terrible brand manager because I'm going to be changing things about it all the time. (laughs) Right. Right? And so that's kind of why I've called it Jason Crandall yoga method with those like power, precision, mindfulness. But again, I still keep it very loose because I still want everyone that I teach to be themselves. I want them to bring themselves. Like if, if, if I trained you, Kim, right, we're contemporary, so I didn't, obviously, but if I trained you, I would want you to be Kim Weeks, not Jason Crandall Yoga Method, like, ambassador. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, I try to have this, like, little bit of a moniker and clarification, but I, I'm really not and never have been trying to do a more structured, formalized brand than that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to hear you describe it all that way, because as I was just telling you before we, you know, press record, Doug Keller's uh, podcast, which I just released this morning, talks a lot about how with lineage comes the assumption of authority. And Authority is a very interesting word that we've grappled with in modern yoga and maybe more very specifically in American yoga as it's grown. 
And, you know, since you and I overlapped in the Bay Area, you're still there. I'm now in Denver. And that's, I'm also really interested in that because you've taken this mishmash, as you say, and, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, morphed it into a method that has this loose um, approach, but these three specific words that you can keep hewing to and the students that you teach and trainers that you train can keep going back to those three elements. And so I was thinking as you were describing it, you know, power, precision, mindfulness could you, that could be a CrossFit brand. I mean, that could be a something else brand. It could be right. And so let's talk about that being yoga because, you know, yoga journal, of course, talks, has talked about you as being one of the teachers shaping the future of yoga. And of course, I'm kind of obsessed with that concept. What is the future of yoga? I'm trying to think where, where, what thread do you want me to pull on next? Let's start with the why yoga? Because it also kind of pulls on another question I have. Well, yeah, because, well, power, precision, mindfulness could Mm -hmm. be applied to like a CrossFit discipline. It could be applied to like a weightlifting discipline. It could be, you know, who knows, like, you know, flying or something. And so yoga got you. And this is the yoga method that you have. And as an influencer in yoga, I'm interested in why yoga, what yoga, how yoga, like, what is it (laughs) for you? Um, I'm only comfortable asking that as it relates directly to me mm-hmm. and my experience, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I'm I'm happy to say. So, um, I won't take you super far back, but let, I'll, let me kind of just close a couple of things. First of all, um, I love the gym, and I love other uh, physical modalities, and I love other intellectual pursuits. Um, I spent a lot of time, probably as much time training in other physical modalities currently, as I do spending time on my yoga mat, uh, of which are both still a lot of time. So I have this very broad-based kind of ecumenical love of embodiment. To me, I can tell you the biggest difference between the embodied part of it. We know yoga is not just body stuff, but in terms of, in terms of body stuff, I can, I can break it down to you like this. In all other physical endeavors that I have engaged in and engaged in, my body is the vehicle to execute a task. I'm using my body to do X, Y, or Z. And in yoga, it's the inverse. So in yoga, the whole intention is to, like the outcome is to more skillfully inhabit my body. So I do my yoga practice to understand the experience of embodiment, but I don't train Brazilian jiu-jitsu or lift weights to understand the experience of embodiment. I use my body to perform those activities. So I've always think about yoga as a much more overtly reflexive experience where even just the postural stuff is a, is a process of self-inquiry. But when I'm training jujitsu, it's not a process of self-inquiry. It's a, it's a competition, right? Same thing when I played hockey or when I was skateboarding forever, right? No, none of my hockey coaches ever were like, okay, when you go into that corner, I want you to just really make sure that you're really taking care of your body in there (laughs) and, you know, find the right intensity. Right. Exactly. I mean, so the, so in many other things, the body is the thing that's sacrificed towards the end goal of something. Totally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I love that stuff. 
I'm a little, I mean, it's like, I, I just, I appreciate it too. Um, but yoga for me, it was, is completely the inverse of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean that we don't sometimes have like physical trappings of the ego and desire and demand in our asana practice. But for me, like the outcome is never, can I do the pose? It's does that pose help me like understand myself a little bit more uh, deeply and completely. Yeah. Right? What does it do? Like I, to me, totally. that's like, you just like, what does it do? And, and even more specifically, what does it do today? Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's much more. Um, yeah. It's my, my yoga practice, even through the experience of embodiment is, it's much more about self understanding than it is like playing a game. And so those are very, for me, those are very different internal states. This is like the smallest little detail, but I don't like, I don't play music. I've never played music in a class. I don't have an aversion to other people playing music, but like for me, when I do those other activities, I want there to be music, but when I do yoga, I don't really want there to be music because I enjoy music, but music is like, for me, it's really enjoyable when I'm like doing something to do something, not when I'm doing something to really pay attention to what I'm doing. Not, not that I'm not paying attention, but there's a subtle difference in there. Oh, so for I, me yeah, I think so, personally, yeah. that's where the, well, why yoga or the power precision mindfulness that could be applied to other things totally. Cause all sorts of things apply like energy vectors and techniques, like pretty much anything we do. Um, but in terms of a yoga practice and how this is physically distinct, I would say that's the main thing that jumps off the board for me. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, so, you know, you are, it, it, as you are one of the teachers shaping the future of yoga, where are you trying to take it? This is a, this is a tough one. Uh, and I want to, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to parse something here, um, which is I, because I think that I'm a, like a good student of the yoga tradition. And I think I understand, I understand not all, but many of the teaching decently. Um, I don't think I'm taking yoga anywhere because I think that yoga is a transcendental existential phenomenon beyond change. Now, what I can say is how am I trying to interface with it? Right. Like, I just want, I just want for listeners, people to think about those things differently. Like yoga is not a thing to be changed or altered, especially by me, but how do I and other students that work with me access the teachings? I think the first thing to step back is to probably say that yoga's never really been a singular homogenous thing, right? It's never been a singular homogenous thing that somehow in the modern era we're corrupting by, you know, introducing X, Y, or Z. Like it just that's just not the case. It's never been the case. Goats, you're, are we corrupt? We're not corrupting it by introducing goats. Beer. <clears throat> I have taken a goat yoga class. Have I you? everyone to know. I almost did. Yeah. yeah. And here's how it happened. Um, so we don't live in the Bay area anymore. We moved to uh, Southern California last year. Oh, cool. And, and there's this, 
really beautiful, like hobby farm. It's not a hobby farm, but it's also not a working farm. It's like, a it's a hobby farm, but it's a commercial hobby farm and they run all sorts of like really fun things. And my daughter found out that there was a goat yoga class and she wanted to do it. And I'm like, totally. <laughs> um, and I did it and um, I genuinely loved it because what, like, what does it look I like? like? Are there poses? I like being outside. Do you imitate the goat? I like, like goats. Yeah, I know. I, I agree with all those things, but like, to, I'm sure listeners maybe, but what so does the goat do down dog? Like, no, it's, just, it shouldn't be called, listen, this is how every, this is, this is how it should be framed. So it's more accurate and no one gets upset about it. What it should be called is yoga outdoors with goats present. That's with what goats it is. What? Out, yoga That's outdoors. All it is. Wait, yoga outdoors with goats? Present. Present. Yeah, they just kind of like walk around and they're really social, right? So like if you're on yeah. all fours, they'll jump on your back. Oh my and they'll, like, god. Come up and they'll like do stuff, right? I love so it. It's it's literally it's just like imagine like if you were if you're a parent and you practice yoga at home, your toddler comes over to your mat. Oh my god. How if many you're a zoom screens? And you have How a many? pet a and thousand? you practice at home. Yeah. Your yeah, animal yeah. comes over. Right, so all right, right. this is, is like, it's outdoors and goats come over. Anyway, don't, don't put me in a position of doing like this. This might be the most quotable part of the conversation. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't even remember where we were. However, yeah. Yeah. No, you were saying that, you know, that yoga has oh, never not, been like yeah. a single thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There are common denominators of the yoga tradition. However, the um the like practical technical components and also the like the philosophical constructs are incredibly diverse right so so we don't there really isn't a yoga tradition there are traditions that comprise yoga with all of those things being said i think if i were just like say where i see the general modern trend I don't think it's going to surprise anyone, but where we see the modern trend um, is more online and shorter increments of time. And that is, we might, we might kind of as like a, look, you and I both, because we have similar backgrounds, there's a part of us, whatever size part it is, that's going to be like more online and shorter period equals not the right direction. I totally get it. There's a part of me that's not the right direction. But I also want to say that I think a big component of this is the increasing accessibility and inclusivity of yoga. So here's the thing. More people do it than ever, Mm -hmm. which means when you have a larger population, you're going to have more ways that that population actually does the thing. Totally. Right? So, of course, as yoga has become more accessible to a larger global population, many of which are tired and busy, they're going to be doing it in mediums that are more convenient for shorter periods of time. Like the, the, the likely, like the, the realistic likelihood of the majority of the global population going to a 90 minute class 
Ugh. multiple times per week is really low. Oh. So, right. So I mean, those are really great. Yeah. Things. It's like for the 1%. I mean, who, what working parent has time and totally. by the way, and if you don't the money, right. I mean, right? exactly. It's gotten so expensive. Yeah. It's crazy expensive. Right. So yeah. that's, that's kind of where my mind goes is like for many years, I would spend hours and hours per week, not only practicing yoga, but going to yoga. Right. And I'll spend hours per week, but I don't spend any time going to yoga. I don't even spend any time going to teach yoga because it's, it's right, right now, all what I'm doing currently is filmed. So, so there are some, there are some, anytime you do something with less intensity for a shorter increment of time, it's harder to plumb the depths of that thing, Right. So I think a lot of the shorter increment, shorter intensity that's happening is harder to go as deep. And it's probably much more about improving quality of life and improving um, like, I'll keep it like that, managing and improving quality of life Mm -hmm. rather than looking to, you know, transcend your existence. Right. 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 So I, I do think, I don't want to, I don't want to say it's, I don't want to say it's more, um, I don't know. I don't, I, I think it's, I think it's fair enough just to say more people practice, but more people are also practicing in shorter formats with less intensity, more or less as a way to manage quality of life. Yeah. And, you know, I want to tease out a couple things there. Cause I'm just thinking about how, you know, when you and I began yoga plus or minus in the aughts, late nineties, you know, whatever, there were like 10 to 12 million people doing yoga in, in the United States. Let's just keep it with the U S sure. I, I now <laughs> we're at like four X that number four or five oh. X, you know, 50 million, something like that. And so at that time, so many different media were influencing the way we did everything, right? We could finish a thought in our brain for a lot, like longer because the TV's, you know, show would like run for however many minutes commercial come. And now it's just like swipe YouTube, jump around. Like I watch my son YouTube and it, it blows my mind how quickly, you know, the brain is like, you know, bumping around from one topic to the next. So even though we have had this media shift that, of course, COVID progressed much faster, it was already happening. We're sort of here faster than we would have been anyway, had it not been for the pandemic. But I still think we were kind of trending online anyway. And I know you've had that great conversation with Amanda Kingsmith about some of these similar issues, the woman, the MBOM woman, the Canadian who's been Mm -hmm. traveling all over the world and, you know, basically was online way before anybody else is thinking about this. Interesting to talk to people like her, but if we've got like this 50 million plus people doing yoga and let's say 48 and a half million of them are doing yoga in shorter periods of time, um, not plumbing the depths and, you know, general kind of lifestyle kind of stress reducing or, you know, fill, fill in other blanks management does that still not leave a million and a half of us kind of floating around 
plumbing the depths, like seeking Jason Crandall for like deep teachings. I mean, I guess the thing that comes up for me is, do you think that there is still a space and a community of people willing to go deep? Because yeah, if, I know that there okay. are. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Then let's talk about the relationship between those of us willing to do that and the people logging on for a 25 minute class. I think the most common environment that we're going to find this in is the same environment that we found it in for the majority of the last 20 years, which is in teacher training formats, right? Um, whether whether it's in person or whether it's live. I, I think that yoga is kind of an interesting thing because whether it's in person or whether it's online, really, we still have the same... Um, flow, like the same workflow, which is typically you get exposed and you start going to a class, right? And so that's a drop-in class at the local studio or the local gym, or now the other option is a a drop-in class, like a random class on a streaming platform, on YouTube, on whatever it is, okay? But that's more or less the like non-structured introduction. But then for people that really love it and get really hooked and want to learn more, that next step is almost always a teacher training program. And you know, just like plenty of your listeners, if they're yoga teachers know, probably at least 30 to 40%, non-scientific number, just estimate. 30 to 40% of people that do a 200 hour training probably don't necessarily intend to teach yoga. A large percentage of them actually end up teaching yoga. But a lot of times people that want to plumb that deeper depth, they join a teacher training program because there isn't there isn't like a a college, right? There isn't like a like a higher level more in-depth ongoing education for yoga enthusiasts that don't also want to be a teacher. So a teacher training is kind of simultaneously for people that want to learn a lot more, but not teach, or want to learn a lot more, but do teach. And I think that that's the environment where people that are really wanting to go into uh, this content with greater depth and intensity and duration. I think that that's ultimately where, where people end up. Um, and I think it's a pretty sensible route to, to my experience. The only thing about it that's really changed in the last 25 years is online has also now become a viable option for that. But, but like the experience of it, the, um, the motivating factors involved it's the same. It's just whether or not you're more drawn to doing it in, you know, in person or whether or not you're going to do it online. And I, I know from my groups of online training students, and then my past groups of in-person and my hybrid groups, every single person in there is passionate about the deeper experience of the yoga practice or else they wouldn't put up with me for 300 hours. Right? <laughs> they just wouldn't. There's just no way that you'd put up with anyone for 300 hours if you weren't really passionate about that subject matter. That's a good right. Point. And I like that's a little self-deprecation, but mm-hmm. I, I would say the, the point is the same. Like 
you there's like I would study nothing for 300 hours unless I really wanted to know that thing and go deep. And so these communities are really impassioned and really smart and really caring. So totally the answer is there are absolutely big communities of people that are interfacing with this subject in a very deep and poignant way. Do you think, um, do you see things growing or do you think we've, do you, you know, somebody said to me the other day, um, I think yoga might be, might have crested, might be, um, in terms of its impact in the sort of, in the public imagination, it, it's kind of gotten absorbed and therefore we might be done. What do you think about that? Um, I don't know. I think it's so hard. I think it's so hard to know because the way in which people practice now is so diffused Mm. and we're such a prisoner of the moment, right? So if, if my experience was, well, you know, I always used to go to so-and-so's class and there are always 50 people, but now there's 26 people and it's been 26 people instead of 50 people for the last six months. Oh my God, half the people are doing yoga. But the reality is are really half the people doing yoga or there's more places to do it right? So there's so many more places that it's just a little bit, this isn't quite the right word, but it's like practicing yoga is a little bit less like centralized and conspicuous. Totally. It's more like it's just, it happens at the job. It happens at the health club. It happens at this. So for me, I just don't know. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue against that sentiment. But I, but I, I'm very hesitant to corroborate it. I think what I'll say is I, I believe that there is still massive global demand, but that demand mm-hmm. is more diffused. It's just much more diffused. Well, and it's also, you know, the demand for what specifically, you know, I was talking to Anjali Rao, the, um, she, she's somewhere in California. I think she's in Northern California, but anyway, the incoming president of the accessible yoga organization outgoing, you know, being Jivana Heyman. And she was talking about the yoga class as something we're like retrofitting yoga, the meaning of yoga into, she sort of takes issue with the idea of the yoga class itself, because it's just a modern invention. And I kind of was, you know, yeah, forcing a modern the issue. invention largely by India in the 1950s, but well, you know, Judith Lasseter was telling me that, you know, the economic demands of teaching yoga in the West is what necessitated the yoga class, because if you, you know, the teacher with 50 students is obviously generating more income for himself, herself, there's themselves than you know, a class of 26 people. So it, it's interesting to me. I think that the, the yoga class itself is possibly the thing that may be somewhat past or, or that, that, that we're morphing into. Like you say, the demand's still there, but I think there's demand for different kinds of yoga experiences. Now. I agree with that for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Let's tease that out a little bit. Like what, you know, what, what kinds of yoga experiences are we capable of offering? And even if, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be asking the question in terms of like a generational thing, but like if a lot of the people that come onto my podcast have been practicing yoga 
for 50 years, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you and I were like closing in on 30 or whatever years of practice. What can we offer to people? And what can we do in terms of being teachers in this market as the demand for different kinds of yoga happens? Um, I think, I think two things, well, maybe not two things. Um, maybe this is like too rote of an answer, but I still see, I still see the primary teaching environments or the, like a teaching environment and, a, and an educational, they're the same thing, whether you're the teacher or the student, right? But you have the public class, which to be quite frank, um, I think it's really valuable and really important. And I don't know how millions of people get access to this without that. Um, there's also, I think we should also understand when it comes to um, psyche and personality type, there are a lot of people that don't actually want to work one-on-one -on -one as the student. It's really uncomfortable for many, many people. So I believe we have to have multiple environments to interface with this because there are different types of people that do this practice. Um, so you have the class environment, which is a drop-in class, but you also have this for teachers, I think this extremely, extremely underutilized group environment, which is a small group series. So you have a, a limited number of people, maybe eight to 12, and you're working with them on a specific set of focal points and topics for somewhere between four and eight weeks. So that's kind of like your first tier of greater specialization. Then you also have private sessions in person and Zoom online, right? We're having this communication on Zoom, but I, we could very easily be teaching each other yoga just as easily, right? Totally. The only thing that right. we're not going to do is manual adjustments, but mm -hmm. that's a whole other subject anyways. And I know. Just find that we're not. Mm -hmm. um, then you're also going to have essentially like small group privates. So you can have one to four people that get together regularly with the same teacher on a certain set of topics. And then, like we said earlier, you also still have um, short form and long form yoga teacher trainings. I think the other thing that we can consider because, because we have access to technology, which in, in ways can be problematic for people, it can be disconnecting for people, but good luck getting rid of it. Um, it's also an incredibly accessible way that we can expand our teaching, but also our, our studentship. It is really simple to create um, non-conventional uh, environments by having a four-week book club on the heart of yoga, a four-week book club, or an, an e-course just on the Bhagavad Gita, or just on the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, or any number of these things, right? So when everything is done at a brick-and-mortar studio, you have time and space constraints, right? But we're kind of beyond that. So, so as a community, we can really think about, what I would say as a teacher is like, what are you passionate about? Because there's an infinite amount of time and space that you now have. You don't have to be like, oh my God, I want to do this at 7 p.m. Do it 7 p.m. on Zoom. What do you really want to teach? Oh, uh, you feel stuck because you're only teaching asana and you don't 
have as much time to teach meditation and pranayama, great. Do a four-week pranayama and meditation course online with your group. So we we just we have so many, it's so much easier to connect with a student base. And it's so much easier to essentially create your own content. But there's one thing that's required in all of these things, um, which is the same thing that was required for you to make this podcast happen, which is initiative. As the teacher, you actually have to have the initiative to make these things happen. And if you don't have the initiative to make things happen and think outside of the box, then then I think some of these opportunities will be lost to you. You know, it, it will end in, you know, a few minutes. And I was thinking when you were way back, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes ago, talking about the workflow, the work stream or workflow that is the same plus or minus for a student coming into a class, taking it online, going to a studio, the same sort of set of experience, generally speaking toward this, I want to plumb the depth, started yoga teacher training program with you or this other person or whatever. And when you said the word work stream, I actually thought you were going toward the work stream or the workflow of what happens in the body when mm. you take a yoga class, which yes, minus the hands-on adjustments, which as we all tumbled into COVID, we're already becoming very fraught because of me too. And because of the big sets of conversations, we were all beginning to ask ourselves about um, consent and the role of it in a yoga class. So I guess what I want to say about this, like work, flow and work stream of accessibility and also picking up a little bit, you were saying about some people's like psyche and personality can't really deal with a one-on-one. I think that's a really excellent point and makes me think about so many of my students have continued on with me online. I've continued as a student online and think back to, yes, it was a crazy time for all of us, but some of the best yoga classes I've ever had in my own body were my first like classes online mm. with my teacher, with a new teacher I was able to finally study with, Sure, you know, after all the years that I couldn't travel to see her, et cetera. So there, there's this law of unintended consequences, I think, occurring in people's own embodied experiences, not just as teachers, when we express the initiative, exactly as you point out, to go and teach the thing that we're passionate about that's, you know, we wake up in the morning thinking about kind of a thing, but I think it's also for students to empower people in their own spaces, which often feel a lot safer than a yoga class anyway. Right. So I I don't know if you have any comments to that, but wrapping in a bunch of the things you said. I mean, one of the things that comes up for me, just uh, like a very specific detail is students that practice on zoom with their camera off. It's not a random reason. There's a lot of different reasons people can practice the camera off. You know, maybe like their house is a mess and they're kind of running around, but people actually really like the anonymity sometimes, right? And that can be difficult for a teacher because to be honest, like it's difficult. It's much harder to teach to a blank screen, right? It's just harder. And we kind of, we like the interaction, right? Yes. But as a student, you have more options. And this is where like, Look, I know a lot of people just don't like change. And the moment something changes, we're going to like, we're going to call that thing out as like, that isn't this, right? But the reality is 
there are a lot of people that for any number of reasons don't feel comfortable or they feel um, a little bit too insecure, any number of things um, to be on camera or to be in front of other people or to be in private. Like they want to learn that thing and they want a little bit more anonymity to it. Um, and so I think that that people can practice a in a live zoom class with camera off or B and recorded content, whether it's on a glow, like I work for, or any of the number of the other places or YouTube or whatever it is. And and this is where like, it's very, I have to push back against it being like the old dismissive, well, when I was blah, 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 blah. I have to put it back into that like literally every 30 seconds. You ha- uh, you've got to, you've got to. But it's, it's the truth. Like there are, uh, it's, it's not, it's why I said very early on, it's not for me to determine what yoga is. It's not for me to determine how people practice yoga. It's for me to determine how do I interface with this existential set of teachings and communicate it to people who are interested in hearing it from me. That's it. Totally. Like, I, I can't do anything else. I can't make any other larger scale assessments or judgments. Mm-hmm. That is such a great place for us to land the plane anyway. And I was thinking, you know, as we do, there are a couple of things. First, I Ed, thank you for reminding me about Glow. I'm glad that people can go access your teachings there. I think that's great. And, you know, I wonder you and Andrea have been doing Yoga Land forever and a long time. A yeah. long time. Yeah. And so the two last questions I have for you are, you know, any learnings along the way, because you've talked to all kinds of great people. And I just, I, I just, I love the instructional aspect to yoga land. And it's just so helpful. It's such a helpful podcast for yoga teachers and the yoga interested. Um, and that, you know, kind of dovetails into lots of things you've already said, but you might want to put a pin on as you end, you know, there are a lot of yoga teachers in the audience, you know, the yoga interested in my audience as well, but lots of yoga teachers. Is there one thing you'd like them to remember or to say to them, um, as we end? Uh, well, first, thanks for bringing up Yoga Land. It has been, you know, it's so funny. Like Andrea and I, uh, the audience as it doesn't know, Andrea is my wife. She's also the host of Yoga Land. We met God, almost twenty years ago, um, and we worked together professionally for a long time because she was my editor at Yoga Journal. Um, and yoga has been this like uh, this through line in our lives, but. Outside of recording yoga land, we don't sit around the house talking about yoga. I, I, may, I did a, like a post on this. I don't know if we've, since we've been married, I don't think we've practiced in the same room mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. So it's, so one of the nice things for us about yoga land is it's like this very structured opportunity for us to talk about this subject matter that is so near and dear to both of us that is not like afternoon we're on the couch just talking about random things in life we don't start talking about yoga so it's been that i think another thing that we have really focused on andrea more so and you kind of you use the word when you brought up uh douglas the word authority 
authorities too always made me uncomfortable. I resonated with how you framed it. But there is a word that I do feel comfortable with, which is expertise. And expertise to, to me does not mean like everything is known. But I think one of the things, and I think Andrea really gets this from having been a magazine producer for a long time, is that you actually look to experts for opinions about the field in which they're an expert, right? Because everyone's an expert on everything, but right, it's actually important when we're doing some sort of published content to like, Andrea is not going to have me on to talk about like car maintenance. You know what I mean? Because I'm not an expert on that. Right. So I think that's kind of the other thing that just comes to mind is it's okay as a yoga teacher to not be an expert on the things you're not an expert on. Just be an expert on teaching yoga. You don't have to be an expert on like family and marriage counseling and brand management and X, Y, and Z is like, if you're really passionate about yoga, then just continue to learn and grow and become a greater expert on this subject matter. And don't think that because you have students that you like have to know everything or have an, an opinion about everything. Like you don't get dragged into feelings you don't actually have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think those are pretty significant takeaways. I think the last and final thing that comes up to me, and it's, it's mostly just built into the character. I think of who I am for better and for worse, but also going back to who my primary teachers were as a yoga practitioner and as a yoga teacher, embrace change, embrace revision. I I say this to my students all the time. We don't go to the museum to look at yoga. Do you know what I mean? Like this isn't this like Mm -hmm. pristine single thing that Mm -hmm. was once great and has now just been corrupted and corroded. I I don't believe that to be the case. Mm -hmm. Um, And if it was that, then we'd be all going to some like, museum to pay homage. It's a living tradition. And so we need to be very, very respectful of its source, its origin. We have to understand its kind of roots. And at the same time, man, continue to learn, continue to grow, continue to revise. And um, that's it. That's great. I think that's a great way to, it's a great way to end Jason Crandall. Thank you so much. We'll put your links in the show notes and I hope that people decide to plumb the depths with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This show was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me, and the music is original music from my former band governess. Please share what you liked or wanted to know more about from this podcast, please take two minutes to review it. If you have the chance from wherever you do get your podcasts, send me an email directly to Kim at weekswell.com to start a dialogue about how you practice well and what practicing well looks like in your life. You can follow us on weekswell.com, follow us on weekswell in many different iterations between Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter and TikTok, you'll find us there, either weeks.well or weeks underscore well. See you next time.